0: Greg Lukianoff, finally. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Fertik. I'm joined today in the studio by Greg Lukianoff, a remarkable American. Greg is the president of FIRE, which until recently was known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but has, in the last year or two, we'll get more detail, become known as the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. It is a nonprofit. It's American. It's focused, I believe, still on the United States. FIRE is the natural successor, probably in my estimation, we'll find out if it's also in Greg's estimation, to the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, that august institution. Many of us shook a fist at it back in the day and also celebrated it sometimes. That's the nature of these things seems to have gone from a non-ideological, non-partisan organization to being somewhat more partisan or ideological. And sometime about 25 years ago, 1999, I think, the legendary pairing of Charles Cor- Kors, I think his name was pronounced, and Harvey Silverglate, with whom I've interacted in the past, um, from the right-ish and from the very left-ish, I think. Uh, Harvey, having been part of the ACLU at the core for a long time, got together and decided that on-campus freedom of speech was severely under threat and would found fire. Fire does describe itself as non ideological and non-partisan, and we're going to talk about that today and see to what extent it has made that commitment and continues to carry that commitment onwards and how it does so. Greg himself, as far as I can tell, has had one job. Greg graduated from Stanford Law School in 2000 or 2001, and as far as I can tell, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, went straight to work at FIRE and has since been devoted to this very American cause and very American institution, and has now been the president and has been responsible for expanding its remit from American campuses and university campuses to the broader American institutional public. Welcome, Greg Lukainoff. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Uh, thanks for having me. And by the way, I've had about 18 jobs. Um, just I started working when I was 11.
0: <laughs> well, OK, good. We're going to add that to the list of things to discuss right now. Um, would you like to, apart from that very important emendation of my bio, uh, reading of your, of your bio that I gave you, uh, read for you, um, would you like to make any other edits? Everyone is always uh, invited to amplify, correct, um, or otherwise amend the bio that I have summarized for them upon my own research.
1: You know, you know, it, it's one of those things where we don't, you know, like to talk too much uh, trash about the ACLU. We, we we still work with them in cases, um, uh, and, and we're happy to continue to. Um, But we are trying to, you know, do, uh, uh, one of the mistakes we think the ACLU made was by uh, letting its uh, mission expand. I mean, they have 19 practice areas now is a big part of the problem. And FIRE is determined to only have one, which is freedom of speech. And I think that, uh, but also making sure that our organization is actually politically diverse um, is, you know, key to, to, to maintaining your focus. I'm not asking for any edits, by the way. Like, I think this is a perfectly normal uh, conversation.
0: Good. By the way, you've, we've already gotten into it. That's very good because yep. I don't talk about the ACLU a lot, a lot, but I have developed a kind of a private feeling that they have gone off course, and we don't need to do well on the ACLU, but I'm glad that you have re-steered the conversation away from accidental trash cock, which was not the intent, but certainly, <laughs> I think, what I was doing, actually, even though I wasn't thinking about it. So let's move on back to fire. So Greg, also, I did leave out, and I'll add... Um, Greg has been the author or co-author of a bunch of books. I'm going to highlight three, though there are others. Um, I think one of your first was Unlearning Liberty in 2012, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, which was kind of like, you know, who knew? I guess you did. Uh, I guess you did. And that was 2012. It's over 10 years ago. And then the Coddling of the American Mind, 2019. The subtitle being how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. I have reviewed that book, as you know, on this uh, my Substack on on finally, and I have done it on my podcast as well. We'll talk about that. And then very recently, you published Dun Dun Dun, 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 dun. the Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all. But there is a solution. Is the hopeful subtitle, and that's just published in October of 2023, so quite recent. So, you're also a distinguished author. Um, all right, let's get straight to it. First of all, you alluded to 18 jobs. Number one, why was it important for you to mention 18 jobs since you're 11? Number two, why is it important that you started working at the age of 11, which is a marvelous thing to tell us, but why is that (laughs) important to you? And number three, tell us about some of those jobs. Tell about your, how did you get, part of how you got here, part of what no, we do on no, this no. podcast is to make sure we understand how special people got to where they are.
1: I'm Well, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I started working when I was 11. Uh, of course, you know, the family situation that uh, made that uh, more acceptable was that we were quite poor at that time, and so it was helpful to be able to pitch in for food, uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, buy pizzas sometimes for dinner and, instead of mom having to do it. Um, but, uh, I mean, the first one was a dishwasher, second one, uh, busboy. Um, after that, I went, worked, worked at Burlington Coat Factory. I worked at Sabaros, I was a cook. The at store, Friendly's. the store of the Burlington
0: Coat Factory, the kind of the place where you get your, you get your winter coats famously it, in the Northeast. Where, yeah.
1: where, where, where you get your, your layaway discount, uh, winter coats. It was a pretty dysfunctional place, um, but incredible bargains, uh, to, uh, to, to, to be clear, um. Oh, wow, you know, terrific! It, I haven't thought about that for a while. So you yeah. did you
0: grow up in the Northeast?
1: Yeah. Yep. Where? Uh, Danbury, Connecticut. No kidding. So yeah. I
0: spent a lot of time in eastern Connecticut.
1: Oh, Okay. Yeah. It's kind of funny because oh. like I, I know someone actually. I ran into someone at the conference who who knows Danbury, and and he was immediately like, "Oh yeah, like a big big Brazilian population." I'm like, "Yes, that means you actually know totally. the town." Totally. And there's also
0: <laughs> also the flagpole. The sort of the, the the there's a flagpole which is a kind of like a. Uh, a point of reference, yeah. Turn to the flagpole in Denbury. Uh
1: huh. Oh, Am I wrong? wrong? I, I, Am I, I misremembering? That, <laughs> that That does ring a bell. But 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 we used to have a giant gas ball, um, like, okay. like 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 this giant metallic, literally thing that contained natural gas. Um, and we would actually have like little like uh, concerts and stuff around it, which always seemed kind of weird. They, they've since torn it down. And we're we're formerly the hat making capital of the world, which means as a kid I grew up around all of these kind of like decaying old factories and they tore them down and it kills me because of course they should have torn them down but they were kind of beautiful in their own way
0: yeah so i have just googled to make sure that i'm not making it up there is a famous flagpole in danbury that at least some point was resurrected or reconstructed and is a hundred feet tall um
1: that's a very tall flagpole but i
0: think it i think it may post date your your childhood
1: yeah, well, I mean the the Danbury Public Library was was a big part of Also, I've been there. My, my yeah, yeah, I I have there. M- m- many happy memories. And it, and I wasn't a good student and it I I was voted most likely to be absent from my high school. But I I would you know, I was a football player. I, I basically wanted people to know I was tough, not that I liked to read. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> so, you so, did like to read. Yeah. So I I'd be I I'd be at the library on on, on Sundays, but I wouldn't tell anybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, Danbury is an interesting place. Connecticut is a very interesting place because Connecticut, you know, uh used to be known as the state from which presidents uh came. They were born, but there was no president ever elected from Connecticut. And Connecticut just had this sort of early uh, uh positioning in American history as kind of the Indiana cross- the crossroads of of America. Like it was there's no there was no locust there. Like neither Hartford nor New Haven was big enough to command or b- somewhere between Boston and New York.
1: Yeah.
0: And well, the- um there's a lot. There's sort of like two connecticut's in some sense, kind of Fairfield County and the rest, yeah. right? Um, and Danbury. Mary- yeah go ahead. I would
1: say, I would say it, it, it's it's even more than that there there's kind of like the the middle there there's like the the the, the part that kind of thinks of itself as part of Massachusetts it's part yep. that thinks of itself a part of Rhode Island there's Greenwich which is not Connecticut you know like, like
0: greenwich, uh, greenwich the, you mean hedge fund land that kind of yeah, yeah, that's the feeling it's, you're it, it's, Got it. it's, okay.
1: it's just new york as when, when my friend's band would play sometimes down in Greenwich you know um his his opening was always it's like we're from Danbury, you know where your gardeners come from, <laughs> which I thought was a good way. To talk about the relationship between the two, the two towns, um, but there is a funny rule of thumb, and it doesn't include Greenwich. But if you have a population of greater than I think about seventy thousand people in in Connecticut,
0: which stanbury does, just over eighty thousand, yeah, now.
1: You're, you're you're depressed. And if you have a population over um like 120, 110 twenty, one hundred and ten, you're completely dysfunctional. So so like did
0: de- 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 devastate Bridgeport, Hartford
1: yeah, my mom used to work um, to make a little extra money. My mom actually started working at the emergency room in Bridgeport, and she didn't stay doing that very long because she very quickly understood why you make more money at the bridgeport um emergency room because it was terrible. but yeah you know, New Haven's a mess. um Hartford. My sister used to live in Hartford. Hartford's just kind of it's one of those places it just kind of feels like it almost no longer exists even when you're there, like like fully hollowed out, yeah. Fully hollowed out, and and um, my uh, you know finding out that it was like wasn't that Mark Twain's like favorite city? Yeah, he,
0: he I believe he in fact lived there. It was a huge shipping and insurance capital for the t- yeah. for a time, and then as insurance sort of dwindled in importance, uh, um, as a as sort of the you know Mary Poppins you know era, uh, big bank and insurance style of, of the the corporate ship of state uh, began to become less important uh, Hartford also started to get hollowed out and yeah. the yeah, Connecticut cities were a disaster. I, just to round the bases at the age of, I think 21. So the cap, the, the main city, the capital city of Fairfield County of which Danbury is a part, mm-hmm. um, is Bridgeport. And, um, and I was the, I, at the age of 21, I was the foreman of a Jury in a murder trial in the in the court in courthouse in Bridgeport. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I was, yeah, I have I have deep ties to Connecticut in your zone. I spent a lot of time. And Danbury definitely was, um, working class, right? I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't say it was depressed. You wouldn't say it was thriving, but it was working class. It was a working class place. Is, it, is it, that right I, or is that wrong?
1: I mean, it was and it had been. Um, but I would say that when I was a kid, it was actually no one thing that was actually really nice was that um. Since I was born in 74, uh, you know, and, and growing, like I, I got, I just kind of thought everything was always in decline. Everything was always yes. getting kind of a little bit worse. Yeah. And it was really yeah. nice that Danbury had kind of like a little like renaissance in like the mid nineties, you know, like, w- like where the, the downtowns, like people started going to the bars again. Like, like yeah. it, it was nice to see been back since downtown's pretty depressed again. Um, and
0: importantly, there was a time when Connecticut had no income tax and that changed. Yeah. There was an exodus from New York State, I believe. Yep. Um, which they,
1: they but, <laughs> and I love Lucy. They move up to Connecticut, actually. Um, but yeah, you used to have no income tax, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I think that it has this this real prop, like this. It's Connecticut is still really nice for low population density places, but for uh, but cities, with the exception of Greenwich, which is not really Connecticut, are are all a wreck.
0: A wreck. Fascinating. Yeah. Um. Well, we've gotten as far as your early childhood when yes. you were in Danbury, Connecticut. And oh, my your coolest job, though, working... b-
1: before I got to college um, was that I was a cook on Block Island. Um, which, which well, okay, was... tell
0: us what. So tell, tell our listeners, many yeah. of whom will know what Block Island is, some of whom may have residences, Shea Block Island, yes. but some of whom won't. What is Block Island and what does it represent to people from the Northeast?
1: Block Island, it's it, it's a it, it's a little uh, island. Uh, I think about eight hundred people live there uh, all year round. Um, but then in the summer, you know, tons of tourists come in. Uh, so it's it's more of a tur- tourist economy. It's about sixteen miles off of R- Rhode Island, off of a place called Point Judith. So you have to take a you know Point a, a oh, Judith,
0: <laughs> Judith. I sure, can't hear you. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and and I I actually worked as a cook at Aldo's, um, which a lot of people know, but I think recently burned down. Come to think of it, um, and then at another insurance place. fire, an oh, no, insurance
0: no. fire. No. I don't know. I never not, heard of place. Never not heard of place. Inco-
1: not uncommon. um okay. <laughs> uh, But the, but but then I worked at another restaurant, which I will not name because I quit almost immediately finding that they had maggots in their potato salad. So I I decided to sleep on the pier that night.
0: (laughs) Okay. I dig it. I dig it. Um, So and Black Island, by the way, uh, I believe no cars. Is that right?
1: No, Black Island has cars. Okay. So it's Fire Island
0: has no cars or Shelter Island, Island, whatever. So Black Island is one of these places that is sort of like, like a Nantucket or a Cape Cod or a Martha's Vineyard, but it's even kind of more remote and more, uh, sort of tiny and, and, uh, it may not be as fancy, but it's sort of in that, that's the feeling. That's the shtick, right? So you went over there. I take it as a working class guy going to make a lot of money in the summer. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the, that's the story you're telling. Is that right?
1: It 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 was it was really fun, yeah. Like the um, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like all my other friends thought I had like these really like hard and brutal jobs, and because they like I had some friends who did the like um, they worked at the with like the fancy yachts that would come in. They'd be like the people like pumping the gas for them and that kind of stuff, and they get huge tips. I liked being a cook, um, but uh, so I, that was I, the I, idea. You were yeah. trying,
0: you were trawling for money. He was a young guy, yeah, and and looking for summer love. <laughs> and here, here well, I come, young Greg Lukyanov. Look out, Block Island. I'm here.
1: Yeah, it wasn't uh, be, being one of the guys who worked in back. That it, it, there were a lot of a lot of waitresses there for the summer, so it, it was a good summer in many ways.
0: Fruitful and multiply. <laughs> so well,
1: hopefully not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well. They might come out of the woodwork. You're famous now. So here we are. Um, you've had a bunch of jobs. Yep. And and then at some point, and I kind of want to skip to the time when you go to Stanford Law School. Just quickly, did you go directly sure. from college to Stanford Law School?
1: No, I actually worked for a, um environmental mentoring program um, for inner city high school kids in Washington, D.C. and the southeast. Um, not just the southeast, but all, all over D.C. And actually, I now live in the southeast uh, uh, in, in D.C. So that's what I did in between undergrad and, and law school. For how long? I, actually about a year and a half. Um
0: what is environmental mentoring for kids in Southeast DC? Or what was I, it?
1: The idea it's called the Environmenters Project, if you claim. <coughs> and the idea was to get kids who are interested in environmental science and to have like a big science fair that would pair them with mentors, you know, oftentimes from like the various administrative agencies, including the, um, environmental, uh, agencies and, um, who could, uh, they, they'd pick a, uh, uh, a, a science project and they'd work together. And basically it was a program for underserved gifted kids in DC. And it was, in its own way, it was kind of heartbreaking because, A lot of these DC public schools are still kind of a mess, but they were way bigger mess in the nineties, um, than they are now. And, you know, meeting all of these super smart kids, you know, at these schools that were just doing terribly was, was kind of heartbreaking. And now that I live in DC, um, discovering that, uh, they got rid of all the gifted and talented programs in DC in in, in the name of equity and like all the kids that I was working with, you know, they they were almost exclusively black and brown kids um, who were all gifted. And it's like, wow, that really kind of screws them over. Now, of course, DC has like ways kind of around it. We have a, we have a charter school system and all this kind of stuff. But, but I think about how, you know, these were the kind of kids who, Kind of like you know, I I pretended I wasn't smart, um, you know, uh, when I was in high school, like the um, and that I wasn't going to the library, you know, on 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 weekends because that was almost kind of embarrassing. And I and I feel like without those kind of programs for some of those kids, you know, that they they're not gonna feel free to be the nerds they are.
0: I have long maintained that before this moment of, uh, uh, di or woke equity. I'd say kind of Marxist progeny equity movement that we're in now. There was antipathy towards gifted and talented program that came from other places, often just budget um, on the theory that uh, the townsperson might say, "Uh, I'm just fine. And I did not go to the gifted and talented program. So why do we have to fund this for now? Also, there's a pretty darn good um, group advocating always for special needs kids. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But the first thing to be cut sort of decade over decade is the gifted and talented program in almost any school district. Yeah. Um it gets cut before special needs, it gets cut before the extra sport. It gets cut before remedial stuff. And the 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 tragedy of that is that America's forward motion, which is never quite fair and never quite even and never quite equitable, that's Part of the imperfection of the deal that we have and the modus we have now, part of our reality is that what makes us special and what makes us go forward and upward and to the right as a country is invariably whatever that top 5%, whatever you might call it, of exceptional kids who make America exceptional. And they come from so many different backgrounds. One of the canards is they, they come from rich backgrounds. They often, often don't. Um yeah. And it is a tragedy upon a tragedy that not only has the regular modus of, of cutting of these gifted and talent programs continued to thrive, but it has been amplified in especially uh, black and brown neighborhoods and communities by this new philosophy of equitability, which has kneecapped yeah. uh, at least one generation of young kids who could have done something remarkable and may now be winged by the good intentions and the nice people who take away their chances.
1: Yeah, well, and this is something that younger people don't even know. Is it like the original Binet IQ test? Like, that was to identify gifted poor kids, you know, that was to make sure that we had to actually lead to a society, you know, where more of the gifted kids who weren't wealthy could actually have, you know, could, could move up, you know, uh, quickly through education. Same thing with the SAT. I mean, as far as like something that actually was um, uh, a positive sign for social mobility. It was the it was the SAT, and and and, and uh, the it, it allowed a lot of it, it allowed to, the smart, smart, and talented kids who weren't upper class to actually, you know, uh, to rise up. And getting rid of th- these tests, which they're doing like kind of all over the country, like the um, particularly in California, I, it, it kind of makes me think. Like, you, you know, the whole Varsity blue scandal, where where that, that that couple, you know, those couples couldn't get there. Um
0: there's a fellow singer, right? Was his name Singer who, so who ran a, day, a
1: yeah.
0: who ran a kind of a diploma mill for uh dressing your kid up as better than he or she was, right? Your yeah, exactly. the kid's actually like a really good sportsman or woman and it turns out they never got into a rowing boat before or a shell before or something
1: like that. Yeah. Well and, and some some of the people that were trying to get in were, were the, the 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 kids of famous actors and that kind of stuff. Right. And it was a big scandal. And I feel like by announcing getting rid of the SATs, I'm kind of like, so you let the parents in this case win because now there'd be no excuse for keeping the 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 the, the kids of celebrities out of these schools. It 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 just seemed like such a warped, you know, uh, decision to make in the light of the uh, Varsity Blue uh, scandal. So,
0: coming, back, personalizing it more though, you did this Environmentors program. Does it still exist? Yeah. And are you still are you still involved? Do you still believe in this particular angle of attack into the problem?
1: I'm. Uh, I don't think it still exists, actually. Um, and, but I do think mentoring programs can be can, can be extremely positive. And finding some specific topic to to, to work on, uh, you know, to to, in, to um, anchor them, I think can uh, can be smart. I, I do believe a lot in mentoring programs.
0: Okay. So now, fast forward to two thousand, let's say one or two. I don't remember. Yep. You uh, are graduating the nearly best law school in America and, and, um, the, the, the school also on the left coast and you are young and full of vigor and vim and vitality. And you decide, I am going to go to a two-year-old program, uh, sorry, a nonprofit called fire. What? made you want to get into this particular field and then perhaps unwittingly commit your entire life to it
1: oh very wittingly um i mean i i Uh, wittingly what made you wittingly (laughs) commit your
0: entire life to it like what what was it that you what was your your awakening moment or your uh your your uh your your moment of realization this was something you just needed to do and wanted to do with all of your time
1: there wasn't a single moment, but definitely, you know, I'm a first-generation American kid. My uh, grandfather, not my great-grandfather, fought the Bolsheviks. I and mean, we weren't arist- aristocrats. We were serfs who made good, who, by the way, were murdered by the millions. Because, but if we have know,
0: time, where to come back to the fact that you are, in fact, not Jewish, though many people speculate you are, including me, I did. And I'm going to ask you a question about that later. You are, you're a Russian guy, you told me yeah. once in private, right? Lukainov I, is a Russian name, and you came, yeah. right? So sort of serf who made good, fine. So here we are. Yeah. You're a serf, uh, descendants of serfs who made good. Here, you just graduated Stanford Law School, and?
1: Yeah. Oh, but, but, but unfortunately, if you want to ask me, like, why I went, went to a First Amendment group, I got to go all the way back. So Go all the way uh, back. Do it.
0: This is why we're here. <laughs> we want to go all the way back.
1: So you know, like we have this family history of fighting totalitarianism. Uh, my dad actually grew up in Yugoslavia, um, you know, uh, trapped between the Nazis, who he got kicked out of school for opposing, and the Soviets, who would kill him if he got the, got the hands on him. Um, so both bad uh, guys, both groups, yeah, of bad guys. Not 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 a great place to be. And that his dad, bad died place. When he was Six, it's just an awful, awful, awful childhood. Um, and so you know, I definitely grew up with a, a strong kind of like totalitarians are the bad guys, but, but if you're first generation or, uh, grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of other immigrant kids, you know, a lot of the kids in my neighborhood were coming from Korea with very aware of North Korea, of course, uh, Vietnam, you know, who were fleeing Vietnam. Um, and uh, a, a lot of kids from, uh, families were from South America. They were fleeing authoritarianism, not as much totalitarianism, but you know, just, so all of us took free speech, <laughs> Um, as being a very special American thing that the, you know, fifth generation American kids did not fully appreciate. That being said, though, it was the 1980s. And the uh, as far as being, you know, a popular value, particularly on the left, freedom of speech was really, you know, a powerful one back then. Um, so it, uh, it was only when I got to a place like Stanford that I started seeing... Free speech skepticism among the uh, among the left it, as a as a major force so you know i really believe in free speech then i was a journalist in undergrad um and people come into your office all the time wanting you to fire and i was an editor so like well, wanting to fire this person or that person or, or withdraw that article and you, you, i started to put together it's like oh wow people really they they claim to like free speech, but they really want censorship when it's when it's do you remember
0: like, I'm not asking you um to fabricate uh
1: sure
0: uh, a particular memory or to yeah. locate your your experience in particular but can you can you particular memory but can you conjure uh by chance offhand unprompted here any yeah. example or two that might have that might be signaled to you as like, hey wow, that's really a that's people not doing what they say they're doing um from that period.
1: Uh, honestly, there was, it was so normal for people to come into the office or to call you or to send you an email, you know, about like censoring this thing or, or punishing that, that, student that I don't have, giving any one would not be, you know.
0: Okay. So you're already at fire at the time that you're having this experience.
1: No, no, this isn't, this is an undergrad.
0: But you're, but you're an undergrad. You're getting calls from whom? I'm sorry. I, I think I might be missing something.
1: So I was the editor of a student newspaper.
0: Um, you're the editor that, of a student newspaper in in college, yeah,
1: in undergrad,
0: in uh, American University. You're an, yeah. uh, you're an undergrad at American University. Yeah. You're, you're an editor of the paper, and you're getting calls from people asking you to censor an op-ed, or that they're they're reporting to you that they were they, there's an a, attempted censorship made against them.
1: No, no, no. It, to 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 f- fire a reporter for for publishing like a story they didn't like. To fire a columnist for uh, a, a story they didn't like. To uh, uh, apologize Someone is taking
0: the time in the 1980s. You say 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. Someone is taking the time in the 1990s to call the editor of the newspaper of American University College. Yeah, and ask them to fire. <laughs> yeah, the oh yeah intrepid undergraduate reporter.
1: Yeah, who or, who
0: or columnist who was covering the school cafeteria food. Who was covering. <laughs> A tenure, tenure, tra- a tenure award process. What what the heck were these people covering that that you yeah. that would draw such ire? Or is it because they were in DC? They were in DC, and perhaps they were covering issues of national import. What what could possibly rise that level of significance?
1: It was, I mean, it was all over the map. I mean, like we had cases in which someone uh, accurately reported on some behavior by a fraternity or sorority and someone would be like, that was, you know, mean to Jerry. I, you, you should withdraw that or this person should be punished, you know. Um, in other cases, it was columnists, you know, writing uh, writing political opinions and not, you know, being intentionally a little bit offensive, but then, you know, having like big forums on, you know, should the Eagle be firing so, so-and-so. And of course, that's... The nice thing, our answer was always, hell no, no, God no, we're not going to do that. Um, if you want to, we, we we welcome you to write a response if you want. Um, we welcome you to write your own article if you want, but we're so not. So people
0: were people were upset by the ink that was spilled and called yeah. you up or addressed you or sent you some at that time not email but a letter and say, I yeah. am offended. Yeah, and I raise a stick at this and I shake my fist at this and I demand. Consequences.
1: Yeah. What, what what was funny, and I always talk about this being really key to it, but they didn't know what the rationale was yet. Um, and what I mean by that is it's like, you know, that was mean to Jerry and you should punish that person, and I'd be like, and what's the justification? And sometimes they'd be like, uh threatening, um, harassment, like they they they'd try to figure out whatever 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 magical world would actually uh get me to punish them. Um and seeing that people knew that they wanted someone punished for their speech, but hadn't figured out the rationale yet, is how I really started to understand it at a, at a like a an integrated level um that uh, the the instinct towards censorship runs very deep, and that's why uh, free speech, the first amendment has to be so broad is because you you create a single exception yeah this to is it. this is
0: interesting because I think of you right now at fire as being mostly involved in something that I would call speech, but in fact, the First Amendment covers right five protections, right? So the five, there are five areas: speech, religion, press. I think, think
1: it's six, really, but yeah.
0: Okay, I think it's okay. So okay, wait a second. I have speech, religion, press, right to well, assembly, I, and right I to petition the government. What's your six? Think sixth? of
1: religion as two. Um, I, I I think that uh, putting religion together as one is wrong because. Um, The freedom from state-established religion, the Establishment Clause, and the freedom of exercise. I feel like they're sufficiently distinct that just calling that the Religion Clause, I think, is... um, Okay,
0: okay. So, canonically, there are five, but you have perceived that one of them is a a bundled right of two rights. Yes. Okay, so there's six. But you started your career in First Amendment as being the intrepid and, you know, I think of you as Tintin of American (laughs) University. The intrepid... Um, crusading editor of the american university pamphlet um, the called eagle. the dog the dog on it oh the eagle okay i, I prefer <laughs> mine the dog on it and uh someone says to me someone says to you oh gosh darn it i don't like it when you criticize the cafeteria food so we want you to have consequences because jerry was offended yeah and this was this was the birth moment where you realized that people didn't really like Reporting, you didn't, you didn't necessarily have to think that that was when they didn't like speech, right? Speech is yeah. okay. So okay, fine. So you're, now you're now you're now you're full of spit, and yeah. you want to protect the press. Okay, so now keep going with your story.
1: So uh, in the in 1995, uh, which was my la- uh, the beginning of my last year in college, um, Congress passed the um, Communications Decency Act that had a uh, clause. CDA 230. Yeah, that had a uh, a ban on indecent speech on the internet. Uh huh. Um, and you don't have to be a First Amendment lawyer to know, and I wasn't yet uh, then, that that's unbelievably unconstitutional because indecency is not a term of art. Like it, it, it it's uh, it, it's unclear what it means, and it was more or less an attempt by Congress to make parents happy by saying, "Oh, this new internet thing's happening. Oh, we'll ban indecency on it, so little Timmy doesn't actually get to see erotica." Um
0: people talk I remember, about little timmy. I've never met little timmy. I keep looking for him. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, little timmy, where is this guy? I've never heard of little him. Little... You know, I keep hearing about him. Never heard never met him.
1: I think I think he's doing pretty well these days. The um uh, and yeah, and and I and so I made my like senior capstone on um on the indecency clause of, of the Communications Decency Act. And that got me really excited about the uh, about um first amendment. Uh and then and that was it was only around then that I decided to go to law school to specialize in first amendment. Um, and I went to law school to specialize in first amendment. I, um, uh, right before I started, the decision was handed down declaring the, 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 the indecency clause of the communications decency act unconstitutional. And I, which I was almost a little bit like, oh man, I'm, I, you know, I missed the party. I wanted to be involved in that. And it happened even before my first day of classes, which I was a little annoyed about. Yeah.
0: I've um, written two books that largely treat, uh, the CDA two hundred and thirty. um, which is the the so the residual surviving part, which gives immunity, blank immunity to internet service providers effectively for stuff that's published on their platforms or through their platforms. Um but yeah, the indecency part was mostly excised, um, you know, at the time you're describing.
1: Yeah. And so I specialized in First Amendment at Stanford. I took every class that they offered on censorship. Um, when I ran out of those classes, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, both, both Henry and Elizabeth. Um, and then I, uh, interned at the ACLU, which they called an externship, which I just,
0: it's just while an while you were
1: in school, what, what while I was still in school. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I was considered a little bit weird for putting all my eggs in the first amendment basket because people were like, aren't <laughs> right, jobs and that, what's wrong with you? I'm, yeah, okay. Well, I'm still doing it. <laughs>
0: that's true, and there was there was a um there was a like it was it was um there was a henry eight you're describing Henry eight right he yeah. what, he did have a um he did have actual legislation or policy in in respect yes. of censorship, and it's i'm trying to conjure it now uh, um I,
1: I, 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 uh, I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, why don't you
0: just give it, give us a couple lines about it because he he um this was Henry more than Elizabeth, right? Am I right?
1: There were different. Uh, there were different, but but Henry Henry was the one who who started it going. So Henry, um, uh, you know, back in uh, like uh, in 1520, when,
0: heresy when he was... and error or something like this, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, back in uh, 1520, back when he was still the defender of the faith, um, you know, actually a good Catholic king. Um, he tried to clamp down on the spread of the Tyndale Bible, which was the English translation uh, of the Bible, from making it into Britain. And so, oh. in 1520 and 1521, um, he had oh. different decrees saying um, uh, that you know boats needed to be searched to make sure that we get rid of this you know heretical translation. Um, and uh, but. Fast forward, so he started clamping down on 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 uh, publications. Then, uh, but he went he targeted specifically the printing press, and this became law in fifteen thirty eight. After he'd actually become the uh, he become a pro a sort of quasi Protestant, um, so he could you know sleep with a girl he liked more, Um, named, <laughs> named Anne Boleyn. Um, and uh, in that case, the, the the scheme they saw they set up, which actually I thought was. Very uh, cleverly medieval. I learned a lot about like, how everything on, on, on these older systems had to be kind of done on, the, done on the cheap. So the smart way to actually have far-reaching censorship in an age where you couldn't have like a massive, um, expansive police state was to require that, any, um, that all printing presses, the technology were licensed with the with the state and approved of by the king. So he would have people and then the people doing the printing presses would approve the book. So he basically put people he trusted in charge of the printing presses. And any uh, any non-licensed printing press was considered to be a very serious, uh, you know, state crime. And the print print licensing system is actually where America gets its idea of prior restraint. That that, that essentially the the biggest sin, as far as the First Amendment is concerned, is saying that there are um, prohibitions in advance of what you what you're allowed to pu- publish. Um, and that actually comes from. Uh, the old li- uh, print licensing system under first the t- Tudors. Most people remember like that. that um, uh, the Stuarts, you know, ha- had the w- which was the the dynasty after the Tudors.
0: Very severe, very totalitarian. Yeah,
1: but yeah, but, but the people people 'cause people think about the sixteen forty four Aria Pagitica. Aria right, Pagitica which, from Milton. Right, yeah, from Milton. Uh, that's a response yeah. to the Civil War. Well, that was actually uh, that's it, later.
0: That's later than right
1: sixteen forty four. It was yeah. That's later than
0: before. Henry and and right. That's a that's a okay. century later.
1: Of the Stuart dynasty. Sorry, I, I, right, I, 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 right, I, I, but
0: so right. So that's a response to it's a it's a it's a. So I think Milton is Arapajitica sixteen forty four. You should say. I forgot that. Sorry, i I'll, part-
1: I'll, I'll, I'll I'll say it again. So. Tudors?
0: <laughs> Tudors, yeah. Um, yeah. Before and, the and, stewards. And,
1: and people, the reason why this was interesting research was because most people actually put it in the stewards. Um Right. The, so this,
0: this is antecedent to the Stuarts, and you found, you located it in the Tudors.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it uh, wasn't like that, that this was like a big, uh, like a big secret. People knew that this was the one who started it, but it weirdly, partially because of again, ah, which I always, my mouth always trips over. Um uh, the the Stuart print license, it gets a lot more um, uh, scholarship. Is, people are more aware of it because they know the 1644 publication by Milton. Um, but I, I see what I was, what they, I work was backwards, to do...
0: they work backwards from Milton. Got it. Okay. Yeah.
1: And so what I was trying to do was to show that actually this was something started by Henry VIII and and enforced by Elizabeth as well, and that looking back at some of those early cases was super interesting.
0: Okay. So so you this is how you this is how you go deeper into your First Amendment research while in law school. Yes. And then you connect yourself to FIRE. You start working at FIRE. Actually, I
1: did did patent law for a year after I graduated because I graduated in 2000. um, And I I worked for a patent boutique shop while looking for a First Amendment
0: job. For Fish and Richardson or one of these places.
1: Uh, it was Del Sandro and Richie, one uh, a very So small... known but
0: obviously fabulous. Maybe they're still not around. Who knows? So you uh, said, they, okay, they, Pat...
1: yeah, they they got absorbed into Thiel and Reed and Priest, and Thiel and Reed and Priest no longer exists. Which for for someone my age is kind of almost unbelievable because it was such a big deal at one point. Um, but it's it it's gone. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, this is the very specific corner of lore that dominates law school imaginations (laughs) you are here in the recesses of the minds of law school undergraduates that's true which is to say that the great brands the ford gm the teslas and apples of law firms often go the way of the whippoorwill often inundated by debt or the departure of one great rainmaking partner okay back to the matters at hand you join fire yep um I want to skip ahead a bit because I want to make sure we get enough attention to FIRE and what you do and sure. also your books. Is Has there been, in, in your long association with FIRE, a particular signal win um, or victory that, and I know there have been many, your impact yeah. has been many, but is there something of which you find yourself rather proud, either because you were involved directly or because it was a particularly difficult case or you persuaded an intransigent counterparty of the merits of your view, um, or you turned uh, either turned the tide at an institution that was playing with fire from a free speech vantage point on campus, or you stemmed the tide. Is there something that comes to mind that you think of as a as a touchstone for yourself or for your organization? Could be recent, could be long ago.
1: We have big wins every year. Um, the, oh uh, hell! <laughs> I love
0: all my children. I love all my wins.
1: But 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 it's it's true. I mean, kind of like, and, and it's funny sometimes. Like I still will get people bringing up like, oh, what about this case? You know, um, with uh, uh, of of censorship on campus like 15 years ago, without realizing that they know about it because of us. You know, like like how long we've actually been at this, and how much we've been able to teach people like how bad it was on campus even 20 years ago. You know, it, you know, and and, and it. It was already not great. I wasn't expecting it to get quite as bad as it is right now. But I'd say, like, as far as some of the stuff that I, I, instead of going to because we had a ton of wins or like, pretty, how about
0: a, some of the losses?
1: Well, no, no, no. But 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 I, I was gonna get to the um, uh, as far as stuff that I wish people paid more attention to. Okay, great, great. Yeah. That's a fair um, that's a fair vantage point. So um, the back in two thousand six, we battled the. Um, uh, a requirement that you uh, so teachers college um in uh in in um at Columbia,
0: Columbia. Horace Mann Teachers College right
1: yeah at so, Columbia University uh, the um uh they, they had a requirement that you show your commitment to social justice if you graduated with your, to get your education
0: in two thousand six yeah no kidding the phrase social justice yeah no kidding okay so you have to well you have to demonstrate your commitment in order to get the degree is that right
1: yeah. Yep. Wow. And and we and we defeated that from a a a, a um accrediting body uh called NCH uh N NCATE as as it's pronounced the previous year, uh where they were trying to actually make that the norm for basically all education schools in this major accrediting body. You'd have to show your commitment to uh social justice back then. And the fact that it was us and like the National Association of Scholars opposing this is a very bad sign and important of things to come because um the uh, 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 uh because that means that higher ed you know these like, 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 like the education schools were so you know Far down the tank that they didn't even object to this being a requirement when it's obviously a political and intended to be a political incest. We were able to get N. to abandon it in two thousand five, but in two thousand six, it actually turned out that Teachers College was actually just doing exactly the same thing. So I wrote. Uh, uh, so we fought the Teachers College one, um, and actually the first article I ever wrote that got accepted by the New York Times was about um, the Columbia Teachers College uh, I know. battle. What's that? Yeah. But, but I know. A, Hey, now. But there's an interesting story here.
0: Oh, tell me the story. Tell us the story.
1: Yeah, so I, uh, uh so I, I wrote a, a column I was extremely proud of. I, it got very quickly accepted by the New York Times, um, and it's like, all right, cool, you know, um, I, 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 I touch, and I was proud to kind of show some of the more conservative people because Fire is like a genuinely politically diverse organization. So that means we actually do have conservatives and liberals working a, in the same office. And I remember being like, see, I got something in the New York Times. Like uh, things aren't that biased. And guess what happened? Um, what happened? The, uh, when the editor, the, like the big editor, came back from vacation or whatever, um, she starts saying, Oh, you know, we enjoy your piece, but you know, we're really busy right now. So. You got can, Tom Cotton. We can run this probably in about nine months, maybe 10 months. We're not totally sure. And I'm like, you, you, You're not willing okay, to. Okay, so the,
0: the piece was accepted but not yet published. The editor. So you're in the interim period of joy, joyful anticipation. You are sparkling in the anticipation of the publication of your debut piece in the New York Times yes. at the ripe young age of, let's say, twenty or fifteen or thirty, actually. <laughs> yeah. And then comes now comes the the editor, the 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 big Kahuna coming back from vacation and says, "Nope, can't do it. We're slow rolling your ship."
1: Yeah. No. It was it was very clear they just didn't want to you know publish it. Um, and the editor who had actually accepted the piece was so embarrassed by it that when he left the New York Times about a year later to start this relatively new thing called the Huffington Post, he immediately and very happily gave me a writing job um, at the Huffington Post. Um, but yeah, so I, I've been, that that was my, my, my not my first nor my last, you know, kind of issue. That's very
0: interesting. I, year, I've never new said Times. this, I've never told this story before, and I think maybe only three three to ten people in the world must know it. Um, I've had a similar experience. I was the subject of, I think, like a sixteen thousand word profile in the New York Times Magazine. Um, is, that, is that correct? But anyway, a very lengthy profile, New York Times Magazine, and it's like it was about line. me. But yeah, maybe it's not sixteen thousand words. Maybe it's five thousand words. But it was, it was, a, it was yeah. a lengthy profile, sort of a magazine piece, a New York Times Magazine piece. The number sixteen thousand sits in my memory for some reason associated with this, and that's normally not invented. But it could be the fee the author got. I don't know. I couldn't be making it up. <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's a very lengthy profile this guy wrote, I won't name him, and it took him like three months, he followed me in person, like lived with me basically for a week to write this profile as part of his reporting. And then the New York Times Magazine editor got changed after he submitted it, and the new one spiked the article and it's never been published. So somewhere sitting in the world is this article from about 10 years ago that maybe one day will surface. Uh, I'd never read it, never know what yeah. it said. Um Okay. So, so this was a signal that this, 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 this 2006 social justice requirement for diploma reception was not a signal, but you wish you had gotten more, you wish you were better known as a yeah. victory. Is there any loss in the history of fire? Not that you, that, that sort of still makes no sense to you or that smarts or that
1: oh. you... Also, plenty. Um, I mean, well, what's the, one
0: that what what's one that makes still it makes no sense? That sort of like that it, that somehow sits with you, and and um, uh, you think was borderline, or you think that was a bridge too far, or uh, exactly bullseye on target for you, but you were mishandled by the adjudicator or whatever.
1: Yeah. Well, um, C.L.S.V. Martinez was a Supreme Court decision around, was it 2012 or 2011? Uh, But basically, um, you know, I'm an atheist, but uh, I also believe in, you know, Christian groups, right, to have freedom of association on campus. And we'd been very successful in defending a lot of these Christian groups, evangelical Christian groups that that, that campuses were trying to de-recognize, you know, for the first uh, decade of my career. Uh, uh, and what they were saying was the argument they were really trying to make was that these groups are not allowed to discriminate against non Christians in their group. And really, what they were getting at was the fact that evangelical Christian groups tend to be, you know, they, they have traditional ideas on sexuality. So it was really going after the fact that that Christian groups have, you know, pro uh, have um, you know, issues with homosexuality. You know, you know, what was was the problem there? So wait.
0: let make it more plain. So, the, the 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 Christian groups, evangelical Christian groups on campus, on campus, yes, mm-hmm. are seeking a freedom of association. I assume yep. that's that's at stake here, and they do not want to include gay people who are Christian or non-Christian people who may or may not be gay. What's the, what's the fact pattern here?
1: they don't want to include people who won't sign the statement of faith which includes believing that you know marriage for example is between a man and a woman and that you shouldn't have sex so there's
0: there's a threshold declaration of faith and commitment to the association's right. principles okay yep. to the principles of the association on the basis of which the association is made yeah okay got it okay carry on
1: yeah and and meanwhile kind of and that's one of the things that we always make the want people to understand is there is a distinction between um a, a belief and status that essentially like if you actually have a group saying that you can't apply to this group because you're gay then that runs into discrimination uh problems but if you're saying that we have beliefs on this um uh, that you know some people may not share that's basically the definition of freedom of association is to exclude people of freedom of expressive association that were united around these particular ideas. And if you don't actually share these ideas, you can't actually join. And meanwhile, you know, some people are sometimes surprised to discover that actually there are people who would self-describe as gay, you know, who join these groups, but they actually believe that well, either uh, that marriage should be between a man and a woman and they need to wait for, uh, you know, marriage to, um, uh, to consummate, and that that essentially like um, that there's a t- t- distinction between status and belief, and and we and we made this argument.
0: So in other words, there were there were people who who were gay or who felt gay or who would describe themselves as gay, but who signed the statement nonetheless because they believed in a faith or they believed a set of principles they that they were rejected homosexuality
1: Christians. because they were evangelical Christians, and and the right. The case that okay. I talk about at Unlearning Liberty that was particularly instructive was at Louisiana State University, I think, and this was a Muslim group which actually explicitly said that they uh, uh, that they were limit um, their membership to uh, from homosexuals, you know, um, but also to people who don't share you know, share the beliefs of the group. So, like, unlike the Christian groups, there was a Muslim group that was actually pre- being pretty explicit on something that they could be stopped from doing. And we, But we wrote the school making the status-versus-belief point, and pretty quickly...
0: And who who is bringing the challenge to, to, to this Christian group's uh, status or set of rules?
1: Uh, other students, generally.
0: Other students who are not affiliated with the group, who have not signed the pledge who want what they aren't, are
1: aren't even christian um, it, well, or might be christian but they they just not want this also.
0: christian group banned yeah okay so they don't want to be admitted to it they just want to be they just want it banned
1: it's usually a, a combination of administrators and students uh working together which is usually is kind of the mo on, on on campus in general
0: but but again the goal is to get rid of it not to gain admission to it and to force it to to change its rules of association
1: if they could get it to um, well, get rid of it is one of the goals, but then also having something where they where uh, uh, Christian groups wouldn't be allowed to discriminate on the basis of faith for membership was the ultimate sort of you know play. Okay,
0: okay, okay. So now we are we are at the moment of fire stepping into the ring.
1: Yeah. So we wrote on behalf of the Muslim group making the status first belief distinction, um, and um, the school pretty quickly wrote back saying oh, wait a second, we hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, I realized that it probably is kind of inappropriate for us to be telling a religious group like what its beliefs should be. And it's like, uh-huh. yeah, actually, it kind of is. Um, and I point this out in Unlearning Liberty as being like, wow, you really got this pretty quick when it was a Muslim group. But particularly as someone who's not religious myself and still sees people in the U.S. to some level as foreigners. I'm like, why can't you get that for the evangelical Christian group? And so we fought tons of these cases over the years. And we won. We won on the court of public opinion just by saying that, you know, a Muslim group has a right to be Muslim. A Christian group has a right to be Christian. um, Like, nobody needs to have me as as an atheist as their head of, you know, their Christian or Muslim group. Um, And we kept, we won on the court of public opinion, but when Uh, The Christian Legal Society litigated this and that finally got to in front of the Supreme Court in 2011. The Supreme Court, uh, by one vote, decided that actually, if campuses want to have a a all comers rule, basically saying that um, that would that would say that you can't discriminate on the basis of faith as a faith-based group, that, that they could be excluded if they weren't willing to sign that. And it's kind of like, that's saying that, that a Christian group would have to have, not, and in many cases, not just some, an atheist like me as a member, but an atheist as even potentially their leader. They couldn't have Okay, so the, defen- the
0: defense of the ruling is that if the university ad- adopts a policy, right, you might say, if the university ad- adopts a consistent policy, consistently mm-hmm. enforced, that no group may exclude on the basis of x or y mm-hmm. then that policy decision, as taken by the university is of overriding importance as compared to the freedom of association of the student groups or would be student groups that would ap- appeal to the university to exist on campus is that is that right That's the defense of the decision the uh, university policy a... is is sort of trump's pure free speech or free free association in that case is that right
1: uh yeah.
0: And why is that not good law?
1: Uh, Because it doesn't actually recognize the fact that um, belief-based organizations discriminate on the basis of their belief. That's the definition of expressive association.
0: Can I come back to you one more time on this? Sure. A university could look like an association that admits students on the basis of some belief system. Mm-hmm. Including a belief that faith-based discrimination, inclusion or exclusion is impermissible on the campus. Right, that would be a an overriding umbrella organization association principle.
1: Yeah,
0: and when you come to the campus, you sign up to be part of that belief system, and it can set a policy that is that is a kind of a interstate commerce clause overriding importance more foundational, more constitutional than the underlying subgroup's interest in an antagonistic or inconsistent freedom of association. What do you think of that?
1: Um, That's kind of what uh, the one additional vote in the decision said. Actually, the weirdest part of it was the Kennedy um, concurrence, which just seemed to fundamentally misunderstand the case, thinking it was actually about a state-imposed loyalty oath, which made literally no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, the, uh, Not the in- first
0: time Justice Kennedy followed that path. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah. Um, sorry, babe. But, uh, I'm having a hard time finishing my thoughts, <laughs> so, so, so I'm getting a little thrown off here. Um, the uh, uh, Anyway, so what was your question?
0: The question was, you said that the the one single vote, the decision-making yeah. vote, kind of followed this notion that the university could potentially have its own take on association. That yeah. could be of overriding importance.
1: Now, if you have a private university, you can make that argument. And then uh-huh. you, would have, you would have to say, because uh, then you're not bound by the First Amendment. Actually, if you have a private university outside of the state of California. Because um, so, in California, you're actually required to um, uh, abide by First Amendment norms. Um, and... Uh, uh, if you're a non-sectarian school, so but so if you have a private university, you don't have to buy by the First Amendment. You could, in theory, have something that says at this school you can't discriminate on the basis of faith, which actually uh-huh. would little, which wouldn't make a lick of sense because m- m- most of these schools that would care about this are actually faith-based institutions themselves, would actually understand that oh, of course we can discriminate on the basis of faith if we uh-huh. have to maintain, ma- maintain our identity. Um, so. Uh, and at a, at, a, at a public school, you're bound by the First Amendment. That means you have freedom of association norms, which means that you want, you're want you supposed to understand that an expressive association means that the atheist club does not have to have someone who explicitly thinks atheist atheism is stupid yes um, because that's the definition of expressive association yes and so the idea itself is troubling from a first amendment standpoint it required a vote that didn't understand what the case was even about um in in order to uh, become uh, become controlling this is CLSV Martinez but it also took at face value the idea that this was enforced fairly and across the board which it definitely was not this was, uh-huh. these were policies developed to try to punish or otherwise derecognize evangelical christian groups again I'm a left-leaning atheist myself. I don't agree with them on all this kind of stuff, but I do uh, uh, agree with their with their right to exist. And as far as v. Martinez is concerned, I think that it would be overturned in a heartbeat. Even you know, um, uh, uh, even several years ago, before the um, uh, the, the major shift to the uh, uh, to the court uh, took place. But right now, if it were challenged, they, they would lose in a heartbeat. You bring up the point
0: of selective enforcement, effectively, right? Um, which does seem to be the big fucking problem that the country is dealing with um writ large all the time every time almost every day it is remarkable do i do i hear you well and do i understand you well and do you agree with what i just said
1: yeah well it, it, on campus i mean the selective enforcement is through the roof like the, the 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 double standards by which um you know one person will get in trouble for saying something that that, that another group will just skirt skirt on by is it's rampant okay Broadening for a second.
0: Fire is non-ideological and non-partisan. I've read enough of your books to have an inkling as to what your answer might be. Is there today, in America, in the world, on campus, however you care to answer, Mm -hmm. is there a bigger problem challenging the First Amendment bundle of rights, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: whichever bundle you wish to prioritize in your answer, from the left or from the right, or is it about the same? And can you amplify as much as possible on that answer sure. for our listeners, who my listeners think about this all the time, as do I. You probably do. What's yeah. your observation?
1: Well, um, and I do want to be really clear here. Fire takes on the left and the right. Uh, all of my books po- point out you know major victories we've won against the right. Um, you know, we defeated the Stop Woke Act, the DeSantis um, limitation on on curricular speech. In Florida, um, we defeated in court. Um, but whether or not there's a bigger threat from the left, from the right, certainly on campus, there's just no question. the 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 threat is bigger from the left. And I and I I've I, I've done several you know shows when canceling the American Mind came out with with different liberal hosts, and the entire argument is like, well, the bigger threat must be from the right. I'm like, what what are you pointing to? What what is, mm. what is the threat to to, to mm. higher education? And they usually point to the Stop Woke Act, and I'm like. Yeah. It, it was bad enough that we challenged it in court. And by the way, we defeated it. Um, there's, so you're talking about one law that is actually trying to respond to some of the excesses that, they, that, 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 um, Chris Rufo and others saw on the left, which some of which are, I think I, I, I agree that there are excesses, but you don't fight it with an unconstitutional law. Um, when it comes to the uh the breakdown of cases where um students uh, w- where professors get in trouble about one third of the professors getting in trouble usually start on the right um that that uh um and that's you know fox news that's turning point u s a et cetera um at, but ultimately the people punishing the students usually or, or the professors are usually um uh, themselves on the left since higher ed is so super majority super dominated you know by the left. Um, and when it comes to the schools that are the most uh, prestigious, uh, uh, where more more of the cancel culture problem actually exists, the top 10 schools, uh, th- those are, you know, overwhelmingly, you're more you're more likely to get in trouble from the left uh, th- than from the right. And I just feel like I'm banging my head against the wall uh, on this for a long time. I'm like, can't we admit that there's a problem on our side? It used to not well, why, be so. Why,
0: why is there a problem admitting it? So, so what I I I have this discussion with many of my friends, pals, associates, you know, and I do feel like they really don't want to acknowledge that there is more of a challenge on a, of an authoritarian type on speech from the left. They they resist yep. that and they point to, in my experience, not the Woke Act though, though undoubtedly you have greater experiences than I do. They point to the kind of the the very small numbers of book bannings or mm-hmm. uh, book banning attempts that happen typically in smaller towns that often get defeated very quickly yeah. that affect a total number of kids which is very small by the way mm-hmm. um but they really don't want to acknowledge it. what is it about our moment where they, we don't want to have an a, a rational discussion about it or answer it however you will i feel like you have something to say right now i can see it on your face go ahead yeah take this wherever you want to go
1: so on the book banning issue, um, the we have a whole chapter in in canceling the American mind on on yes. book banning, and it, it's important to sort of break it up into the different categories. Fine. Now, now if you're talking about curricular bans, like if you're saying like some of these laws, when it's applied to K through 12, they say um, that uh, this school like it will not be part of the curriculum. Books that make. Um, students feel marginalized on the basis of their race or, or sex, etc. Like, they basically they mirror anti-discrimination laws, but they apply to all students. And so because they apply to all students, that also means that, in, in this case, is they're, 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 by their plain reading, they're saying, like, like, listen, if you're reading books that actually make white students feel incredibly uncomfortable, they, those should not be part of the curriculum. I think they're too broad. I think they're too vague. However, um However, they... Uh, are they probably constitutional um in k-12 <coughs> curriculum yeah because um it, it, it be, because in k through 12 curriculum um th- that is in part decided by voters uh because it's our kids and literally you know my, my kids attend public school in dc um they uh, it, you know it's our kids it's our tax dollars and it's mandatory if if any of those things did not apply. If, if, if public education wasn't mandatory, for example, some of the analysis would actually change. But in other circumstances, it would be completely nuts. Ex
0: ante, yes. Query yep. what the selective enforcement is, yes?
1: Yeah. Uh, do, do, say that again? I, I Query
0: if do. there's se- selective enforcement, right? Ex ante, a, mm-hmm. a, a blanket proposition or prohibition on some type of thing, as long as it is consistently enforced, right, yeah. would be constitutional. But if it is selectively enforced...
1: Well, if no, in... actually, that, that that doesn't even apply in this case because um, the, the the government um, ha, actually has a, an appropriate say uh, in what what is taught in case in public K through twelve.
0: So it is permissible to ban books that make white kids uncomfortable, but not kids of other races uncomfortable.
1: No, it, it's it, it's permissible to decide what the curriculum is. So that means like what books will will or will not be included. No, it 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 it's it's saying that the um th- that essentially like the the state has a role in deciding what curriculum is in 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 public education. So that that means that they routinely decide what books are included and what books aren't included. So to be sure
0: to be sure I think I think what you're suggesting which sounds true to me is yeah. that that it is permissible for a school board or state to yep. determine that books that make students uncomfortable can be excluded mm. from the curriculum. Yeah. Yes.
1: Okay. And and, and, and well, it, what, but I I keep on coming back to precisely how I said it, which is it's it, it's permissible for them to decide this is like what 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 these laws could actually do instead would be kind of like these are the following fifty books that you should be teaching kids. Like um, in this and they case, can
0: they can just name them.
1: Yeah. I mean. Right. It's up right, to the so, st- It's part of the state's role when it comes to public education. Can a state can
0: a state permissibly can a state permissibly exclude books that make only one group feel uncomfortable?
1: They do that all the time. I mean, like the like the, the that's. I mean. The, it, w- when you look at actually the the, the curriculum, and I was really hoping to get through the curricular part pretty fast because because like what I'm saying is that the state has a role in deciding during curriculum. I haven't even gotten to book banning yet.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, fine. Okay, I'll, yep. then I'll, I'll okay. Please carry on to book banning. Never mind my question. Yeah.
1: Okay, so um, so book banning generally, when you're talking about the in a way that is 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 a problem, are applied to K through twelve public and um, public libraries, including bookstores. Um, so we've definitely objected in cases where books have been uh, removed from public libraries because they're not considered to be uh, fit for kids. Uh, we've objected as well, and the same thing in, in K-12. through Uh, We've even had cases where there's been laws trying to target books that are actually in in bookstores. Um, And when it comes to the analysis there, you you know, um, the the most egregious case is when um, states, including Virginia, for example, you know, uh, tried to have uh, certain, you know, controversial books not be available to be uh, sold to anyone below a certain age. That's... um, that's a problem because that's a private business and that's uh, you know a, a state overreach. when it comes to public libraries um, the the analysis is, is um only slightly different, that that essentially if a school is deciding, sorry, if a a library is deciding that this book belongs in the kids section and then decides it uh, belongs in the adult section, that's something usually within a library's power to do. If the state then comes in and says this book has to be entirely removed from this library, which does happen, we absolutely count that as a a book ban. Um, And if uh, someone comes in and actually arrests Um, the, the librarian, which by the way also has happened, that's, that's a book ban as well. When you get to K through 12 libraries, um, there's a case on point called Pico from 1983, um, which, yeah, um, which didn't, there was no majority opinion, but it's generally read to mean that you can't, uh, come in and and say that we're going to ban books just on the basis of viewpoint. And we think that's actually a pretty sound, a way to look at it, they can, however, decide on the basis of age appropriateness, um, and and most schools do. So even though, so when it comes to these book banning laws applying to libraries, they actually do apply to quite uh, quite a large number of of students across the country. However, in a lot of cases, what is not being presented is just the idea that some of these are you know disputes about whether or not this is appropriate for uh, you know uh, seven year olds. 17-year-olds or should be in the adult section. To be
0: sure, to be yeah. sure.
1: So so, okay, they're, so, they're, so
0: they're, then I think by accident, I invited us down the wrong apples to oranges comparison. Let's say apples to apples. What is it yeah, about yeah. the current moment that does not allow us or our peers, our friends to acknowledge? What is it that they think they're admitting if they admit that the left is more authoritarian at the moment in free expression discussion on campus, anyway, if we want to limit the discussion, so analysis on campus discussion, what is it they think they're admitting if they admit that? What's the I risk? Don't, what?
1: I don't, I don't think that. The, I, I think that we're at a stage where we're just so tribal in our thinking about ourselves that even though, you know, Americans used to be a little better at understanding that we're a multi-party country that just has two parties, and now it's kind of like if you're on the left, you have to defend almost everything the left does, and and if you're on the right, you have to defend almost everything the right does. Um, At least if you're, you know, if you're a a true warrior for, for your side. Uh, and it's kind of maddening because certainly when I was younger, um, the liberals picking on the, uh, on the progressives or, or, or actually what I always made the distinction. I had no problem calling myself a liberal because we all kind of made fun of the left, like the weird people who thought Mao were fine and Lenin was nice. And like that, the enlightened censorship was a good idea. Like you guys are jokes. Like, um, and that was perfectly acceptable. It, you know, and actually indeed kind of like, you know, a fairly popular view by by the mid 90s and now it's just kind of like no no the answer is always it's just the evil other side it's just the evil it's just the evil right and and it can it and it means that problems you know on the left side of the fence which we could actually fix are never going to be fixed if you can't even admit there's a problem in the first place
0: wow okay um fine we'll do it ding 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 ding. that is not yeah. a bell that is that is that is a real bell it is not my voice we're going to do speed round here sure. With Greg sure there's a tradition on the podcast um this is very quick you can answer or pass so <laughs> it's totally okay. up to you what is your favorite visit uh, city to visit
1: oh that's a tough one um you know i lived in prague for a long time and i do really love prague
0: what is a country or city that you have not visited you'd like to visit for the first time japan best slice of pizza store and toppings you're from connecticut oh my goodness you have to have a good answer
1: oh that's really tough i mean i i love i, I love both modern and pepe's in new in new haven Ooh,
0: wow pepe's yeah, sally's Pep- was also pretty good
1: sally's is great i mean that that's the thing is everyone wants me to choose among my children on this one and it's kind of like sally's pepe's and modern you have established
0: all... in this interview we, you can't do that you don't like doing that you yeah, do exactly. not like exactly.
1: Uh, but because um, they're, they're all they're all splendid in their own ways
0: Okay, well then, name a topping. Any topping? Then give us at least a topping. Give us direction on topping.
1: I'm 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 simple. I I think the best toppings are mushroom, onion, and uh, pepperoni. I just think they're magical together.
0: That is an incorrect answer. One guilty pleasure that you really kind of don't want anyone to know about, even though it's not so secret that you won't share it here.
1: Hmm. Uh, Upstairs, downstairs. uh, Given my mom is British, I am a sucker for old BBC uh british dramas that's cool uh biography or history Ooh, there was a um oh do i prefer biography or yeah. history or, or you're asking yeah
0: me? Biography. Uh, what, what do you choose biography oh, his, or
1: history? uh history definitely okay.
0: cheeseburger or hamburger
1: cheeseburger hot oh, dog
0: oh. or cheeseburger cheeseburger okay good that is a correct answer yeah. your favorite released a at least a favorite fiction author uh dostatsky You are a serious man,
1: (laughs) but it's great though. It's great stuff. Uh, But I I mostly read. Do you read Russian? Not uh, not anymore. I could read it a little bit, but I kind of completely gave up on uh, on (laughs) Russianness.
0: Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, Can you name one very overrated author, preferably of fiction, or if you must, nonfiction? Someone you think is just like you don't get it, or you just think it's full of it. He or she is full of it.
1: Paul Oster.
0: Who? Oh wow! What an answer. Okay, that is that is that is the um, most interesting answer I've gotten to that question. For would you like to recite two or more lines of a poem? Any poem?
1: <laughs> um, not, this is not my ha- Q test. This without- is not my Q test. Without not having eaten yet today, I mean, like within the infant rind of this small flower, poison hath residence and medicine power, and upon being tasted, something, something start and then slays all senses with the heart. That's Friar Lawrence's soliloquy from uh, Romeo and Juliet. to oppose it, uh, two camps. Yeah, hey. Faye. Well done. <laughs> um, OK, are you longer
0: or sorry, long or short? Joe Biden.
1: Oh my God, such a um,
0: you can pass. remember.
1: Yeah, I, I, I will pass on that one because I'm, I'm I'm too freaked out by 2020.
0: Long or short, Kamala Harris. Short. Who will be the Republican presidential nominee in twenty twenty four?
1: Uh I think it will I think there's a good chance it will be Vivek.
0: You heard it here, folks. This man <laughs> is a constitutional lawyer, not a political analyst. <laughs> Who will be president of the United States in two
1: thousand twenty five? Oh God. Um, I'm not. I, I like. I. I. I think it might be Trump. Um, but I'm worried that. It, well, that's a long story. You Gosh. heard it here,
0: folks. He just said Vivek was going to be the nominee, but Trump will be the president. Yeah. Will Donald Trump be convicted of any on any of the charges on which he's now indicted federally or in Georgia before the election? Yes. Before the election. Yes. Well, wow, thank you for the clarity of that answer. Yeah. Was January 6th an insurrection or cosplay or some other dumb fucking thing?
1: Uh, I, I, I think of it as an intended insurrection in order to uh, interfere with the counting of the electoral college, which people love to minimize is that being that serious. And I think that to minimize it is just nuts.
0: Okay. What dish did your parents make, either of them, that you wish you could make as well or that you are definitely able to make at least as well as your parents?
1: Uh, My dad doesn't make any good dishes. Uh, My mom made a a really good cheese lasagna, and she makes a great roast with potatoes.
0: And do you make them well?
1: I am a good cook.
0: I'm detecting a pattern about how you answer (laughs) these questions. Um, Okay, so we don't have a lot of time left, and I respect your time very much. Um, You're a busy guy. You locate, we're going to talk about canceling and canceling American Mind and... I think you locate, if, if I if I understand you well, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I think you locate the beginning of the cancel culture moment in America in perhaps many incidents, but in the an incident at, on, on the Yale University campus, mm-hmm. um, which involved a friend of ours, Nick Christakis. Yeah. Um,
1: I was the one who videotaped that, by the way.
0: Yeah, I, I know. You actually videoed it and were the... Were the historian in real time? What happened that day, and why was that the start of this moment? Apart from the fact that you happened to be there and make it made it make it important, what, why do you locate this moment in that incident? The beginning I of this actually, moment. Isn't
1: I actually think the beginning of cancel culture and the beginning of the major shift that I saw on campus being the uh, the 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 shout down of. Um, Ray Kelly at Brown in late 2013, um, okay. and that was uh, not something I would. I, I, shout downs were not uncommon, you know, for most of my career, starting in 2001.
0: This is the police commissioner of New York City, Raymond police Kelly,
1: pra- 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 police commissioner of New York City, and, and he was he was
0: actually sitting in office at the time, right?
1: Yeah, um, I don't think he was, but but but, but not sure. Um, and he was shouted down when he tried to speak at Brown, and the thing that made this so... And that, that wasn't that common back then, but also it wasn't that uncommon. Um, and But what made he was,
0: it, he was He was police commissioner until December 31st of 2013, so that, so that would imply he was sitting police commissioner at the time.
1: Oh, yeah, because I think this was like either November of 2013. It was right yeah, towards he, the end of 2013.
0: It was in 2013, so that's the last day. So he, he, he was a commissioner at the time.
1: Yeah, okay. So they, they shouted him down um, at, uh, at Brown... And the thing that made it so different than any other previous shoutdowns is that usually, like when that kind of stuff would happen on campus, even people on the left would come out and say, "Come on, guys!" Like that's—I remember, um, you know, John Stewart calling out a a a a, a speech in, at Columbia in 2006, where uh, lefty students chased one of the Minuteman people off stage and being like, "That's not how we do this! Like this is embarrassing." And what made the, the, the shout down of Ray Kelly so different was that people on the left very much came to like, yeah, bravo, these brave students. And it's like, no, they're, they're enforcing the popular will of, of, of Brown on someone who actually had agreed to take hard questions. Who, who uh, Anyway, so I, I see that as a symbolic um, start of cancel okay. culture. Um, okay. But, I, Which but is I was about four
0: th- years before, right? I mean, Christakis is seventeen, is that right? What year is uh, that?
1: Christakis was twenty fifteen, so fifteen. Um, okay, two years before. Thank you. Yeah, and and what what's funny is there are a lot of people who think that the original Coddling in the American Mind article was written in response to the Christakis attack, and meanwhile, like the it was actually written the summer before it you know when when we uh, pointing out stuff we'd notice in 2013 and 2014 go uh, g- going wrong but later you know when when coddling the american Mind article was like recirculated in response to the christakis like this is an incredibly insensitive thing to say about those students who uh surrounded and um wanted to get uh both christakis cancelled so
0: so picking either and, and moving right along because we are running out of time and, yep. and and this is so discursive which is our style but i want to make sure that you guys to frame it the way you want to frame it for, frame it for our, our listeners. <clears throat> Raymond Kelly shouted down at a speaking event, a speaking occasion, yep. Nick Christakis and his wife stripped of their roles or forced into resignation. I don't remember exactly the detail of, this, of that of that particular element. but Forced into resignation or, or stripped of their roles as the uh, masters of the college at Yale, the heads of the college at Yale by a... a, a a, a, a mob of students who didn't like his wife's view of how Halloween costumes should or should not be yeah. self-censored by kids. Um, why do you, why do you locate choosing whichever one you want? Why do you locate this the beginning of this cancel culture moment in either incident? And what happened then that? we now see happen more frequently since then.
1: Yeah, so um, prior to 20, right at the end of 2013, students had been the best constituency for free speech on campus in in my experience. And it was late 2013 going to 2014 and then to, to today that they've become one of the worst. Um, and, but here's here, here's like the dirty little secret. It's not that students um, have replaced administrators as the bad actors on free speech on campus. It's okay. that students joined administrators oftentimes working together um, to uh, shut down speech they don't they didn't like. So, for example, one thing I didn't know until I started pointing out all the different other cases where DEI administrators actually encouraged cancellations or encouraged, um, you know, students to sign petitions to uh, get various professors fired or, um, or to pass new speech codes. I didn't realize until I, I, I mentioned um, the DEI administrators who tried to get uh, people canceled at Harvard, and then uh, DEI administrators who helped organize the shout down at Stanford Law School uh, of Kyle Duncan. Um, earlier this year, that he was like, oh yeah, there were like three DI administrators in that crowd that surrounded me. And I was like, I didn't know that. Um, So... The uh, it, it's not just you know the students hitting campus were uh Ill- were more illiberal although they were and and they're much more sort of they, they got a lot more sort of pride in opposing offensive speech but it's uh it is the uh, them meeting the administrators who are already doing this uh, led to you know what I would say has been a disastrous decade on campus.
0: <sighs> How do we solve this?
1: I am having a hard time figuring out anything other than uh, you know a lot fewer jobs um, requiring a BA, um, a lot uh, 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 um, a lot of experimentation. You know, University of Austin gives give me some amount of hope. I do think that we do the campus free speech ranking, um, where we take yeah, that's 13, a big thing
0: that you guys publish.
1: We, we do thirteen different <laughs> factors. We do absolutely massive survey plus four big databases of. Professor student cancellations, uh, speech codes and um, uh, and and de platforming. Uh, and uh, and it does show that some schools are better than others when it comes to free speech by a lot. Um, but right now, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who are saying I, I'm not going to continue to support Ivy League colleges unless they do the following things, and I'm like, okay, you were half right. Stop supporting these schools. Like, it's interesting. Like, you know, like, I, I I've recently had somewhere. occasion
0: to look at. I recently had occasion to look at the admissions or the matriculation of the best schools in America, and I have seen more and more kids from the best schools go to U Chicago, which I think does reasonably well. Oh yeah. In your rating, and I I believe that the that something called the market, like the parents, the kids who are the brightest, are yearning for more freedom. And I believe that would be maybe one of the reasons that Chicago has been standing out. Do you, do you suspect what I'm saying is true, or you have no idea?
1: Um, I definitely or do. do- you- I definitely do do have the impression that a lot more people are applying to um, to Chicago. I I think that I'm seeing the reaction uh, post October seventh on, on, on elite campuses, and I think that some of the things that donors are asking to do won't fix a damn thing, but it will make donors think that oh, it's really the rot isn't isn't that deep when really it is. Uh, Ivy League campuses all did badly. Um, in our free speech ranking. I have a, a, a scintilla more hope for Stanford because it actually started this process before October 7th. So, and, and they put someone who is good on these issues, Jenny Martinez, uh, she, they just made her the new provost. But still, uh, like, uh, sending like, Telling your, uh, telling your your beloved alma mater that you're sending your kids to some other school entirely, and that you're giving your money to University of Chicago or hell, Michigan Technological University, which f- finished um, first on our list. I I, th- I think that the uh, uh, I, I think that. Ivy League needs to suffer real consequences, um, or they won't change. And by the way, we need cheaper, more rigorous alternatives to the way we do this today.
0: So, so to use a word that the kids use today, you don't see an alternative to decentering the major educational institutions of yesteryear.
1: Uh, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think that we rely way too much as a country on. Harvard, Yale, et cetera, for getting our ruling class. And I think that's a mistake. Um, And I think that we need to figure out Lower cost, better ways of so that people can, a, a broader range of people can raise their hands and say, I am the smartest, best read, hardest working person you could ever a, a possibly want to hire that doesn't require spending, uh, sh- showing that you might not be that bright after all for spending $70,000 a year on some of these schools.
0: Do you believe there will come a time in the next 10 years when the DEI infrastructures of major universities will be dismantled?
1: Uh, I hope. that 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 that, that'll happen i definitely think some schools will do it um i think that a lot of schools are terrified to even say that this is a problem can you make
0: a bet as to who might be first
1: who uh who are you betting on i don't know i'm not
0: i don't think about on uh, campuses as much as you do and i also don't know how deeply rooted some of these infrastructures are um yeah but i i do think that the that Harvard made a mistake in addressing it at campus by trying to sort of make Jews part of the Victim Olympics instead yeah. of just taking away the DI infrastructure, which I think causes a lot of these problems.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, most of the elite schools are too chicken to actually say that the the DEI infrastructure is a big part of this problem. So I would look uh, for that to come probably from, you know, maybe a, 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 a school in Florida or, or, or maybe a school, basically a school that's, that that's in a, uh, in a red state, you know, deciding, listen, we're we're going to, uh, and I I wondered, I have wondered why this hasn't happened earlier that someone decides, you know, then some mid tier struggling school to be like, you know what? We're going to be uh, we're we're going to try to do what University of Austin is doing. But we're going to try to do it now. It seems
0: well like a gimme, work. right? It seems like yeah. um, you could, and you know, I'm involved with you at UATX. I, I, yeah. It seems like a gimme for some smaller school or some less famous bigger school to say we we're going the other way. We want all of you who want us to go the other way, uh, and you don't have to feel like a fascist if we're you know, if you join us going the other way because you're not one. Yeah. Um. You can be lefty or righty, but whatever it is, you're you want free speech. Okay. Last question, because we're running yep. out of time. Uh, you're not Jewish. We've talked about this before.
1: Yep.
0: Um. So I, in this moment, I want to ask you this question. I think it may be relevant that you're not Jewish. Is anti-Semitism widespread in the U.S. and on campus in particular? Is it more widespread than people would like to think? And if so, do you have an opinion as to why?
1: I think anti-semitism is not as widespread in the country as a whole. I do think it's quite intense. Um, in schools in California and in elite colleges. Um, and I know that they would say, "No, it's anti-Israel." I'm like, uh, "Like, not, not, not." From what I've seen, it it jumps it jumps into just flat out anti-Semitism in my experience. And I've particularly noticed the nastiness, like when I went to um, uh, UC Berkeley um for a talk maybe even ten years ago, and being like, "Wow, okay, I'm sorry. I know you guys think you're just anti-Israel, but you are anti-Semites." Um, at, at least as some of the people that I was talking to, and. and. And I think it's likely to get worse, partially because of what Haidt and I call common enemy um, identity politics. This wild oversimplification of identity um, that doesn't emphasize the preferable, which is common humanity, identity politics, which is a much healthier way to talk about identity, Hmm. um, where part of the goal is to find like not who you're for, but who you're against. And and so I I fear that this is going to get worse as well, which is another reason why like if a lot of these students... Um, you know, from J- Jewish families are saying to themselves, like, I'm not sure, like, I, I, I'm not feeling safe on some of these campuses. That's not an easy fix. That, that that's been something that's been you know brewing in this oversimplified you know idea um, of of good versus evil, more or less, um, in, in in K through 12 on up. And I think that a exodus to some of the more experimental experimental models or some of these other other schools would be something that um, would be welcome because I, I think that the rot in higher education is pretty deep.
0: Thank you very much, Greg Lukainov, for this wide ranging, stimulating, extremely well informed conversation. I have enjoyed every interaction we've had, and I've enjoyed your books. And I look forward to continuing to watch your organization wade into some of the most thorny and difficult disputes that America is now facing internally. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.